If you're like most people, and I'm certainly like most people in this sense, when things are going well in your life and things really seem to be good, you tend to think God is on your side. And when things aren't going so well and uh, life isn't so positive and life is hard, you have a tendency to think that God isn't on your side. Just the rut we seem to fall into. If you listen to televangelists, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, uh, they're going to essentially tell you that. They're going to affirm that way of thinking. Yeah, if you're, if you're not wealthy, if you're not healthy, if you're not living high on the hog, you know what? God is not blessing you. Uh, maybe something's wrong and God is against you. If you've got it all and you're rich and, and driving a great car and big bank account, obviously God is for you. Job's friends, like the televangelists, would, would tend to agree, at least some of them. When things are good, God is for you. When things are bad, God must be against you. There's another group of people that would also affirm they were Jesus' arch enemies when he was on planet earth, and that would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees tended to be wealthy. They had a lot of power. They had things really going for them in this life. And they associated those things with God's affirmation. The question is, is it true? Is it true? Success in this life and living high on the hog and having health and having wealth and having all of these things, should we conclude that therefore God is blessing me? Therefore God has accepted me. Therefore everything is fine and good. Or when we're down and out and sick and suffering, should we conclude that God is against us and something must be done? It's a super important question. It's been going on for a long time, this back and forth way of thinking. Thankfully, Jesus talks about it when he confronts the Pharisees. And so we're going to look at that this morning, this very relevant issue that was relevant then and it is now. And we're going to see this in Luke 16. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And it's at the latter part of Luke 16. It's commonly called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a pretty famous parable, a pretty famous account of this... Uh, rich man and then you have this poor man and they both die and they face two very different kinds of experiences. Now as you're turning to Luke 16, uh, I should at least say some people say it's a parable, some people say it's not a parable. Uh, I'm not going to try to settle the argument. Um, in one sense, I don't think it matters because it's clearly a story made to make a point. Okay. So we, we can at least agree to that. Some people say it's not a parable because it doesn't say it's a parable. And then you hear the objection and say, well, Jesus doesn't always call his parables parables. Um, if it is a parable, it's the only parable where there's a proper name used. Okay, maybe so. Um, in the end, it's meant to drive home a major point about life, death, suffering, blessing, God affirming, God not affirming. And we just need to keep that in mind. Also keep in mind, and I'll mention it as we go probably, I hope, but in case I forget, remember the context, and the context would be as we're watching the flow, the context would be Jesus confronting the Pharisees. And I'll remind you of this, no doubt, but the Pharisees are considered, just before this, they're considered lovers of money. 
Okay, they're they're the rich guys, and so as Jesus is going after the rich guy in the parable, don't forget, don't isolate this out of context. Realize the people who are in Jesus' crosshairs, people who are in the scope, are the Pharisees. And so don't forget that. Sometimes we take Bible passages and we remove them from their, their natural habitat and we make them mean all kinds of things and it's a lot easier to interpret the Bible in context. Remember, Jesus is still going after the Pharisees, not because he's mean-spirited, not because he's a bad guy, but because the Pharisees are deceived and they're deceiving. And so for their benefit and for the benefit of his followers then and now, he's got to expose their wrong way of thinking He's got to expose them for who they are. And so he gives us this parable to help us, to help you, to help me think through God's blessing or not. Okay, so with that in mind, Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, we're just going to walk our way through it, and then we'll draw some conclusions when we're all done. Okay, here we go. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Got the point? It's pretty clear, right? He not only has purple clothing, and purple dye is hard to come by, so the wealthy had the purple clothing um, because they had that unique access to the unique dye, so wealthy outer garments. But this guy's not only wealthy enough to have purple clothing on the outside. Luke even records the fact that Jesus highlights that he has nice undergarments. Okay? He's got fancy underwear. Okay? is what he's saying. That's how wealthy this person is. Which is actually relevant in just a little while, given the fact that he's going to talk about somebody who doesn't have such things. Now, and again, remember, verse 14 has the Pharisees being lovers of money. They, this is the kind of stuff they would love. Verse 20 says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered not with purple clothes, not with Calvin Klein underwear. He's covered, notice the contrast, it's on purpose. He's covered with sores. Verse 21 says, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. He's laid there, commonly used to describe someone who is paralyzed in one form or another. Okay, so, so he's paralyzed, apparently. He's laid there. Good place to beg, so you get your friends or someone to lay you there. He's hungry, doesn't have food, doesn't have means. And not only that, add insult to injury, the dogs are licking his sores. Dogs associated with wild dogs, that which is unclean. couldn't be a greater contrast. It's not the Lazarus Jesus raised from the dead because he had family members to care for him to one degree or another, so it's not that guy, it's someone else. It's interesting, the, word, the name Lazarus um, means something like God takes care of, God provides for. So that might actually be why there's a proper name used. Because God's going to take care of this guy because others didn't take care of him. And then we move to the afterlife. Verse 22. The poor man died. I underline died just because it's so final and it's meant to be a point of contrast. The poor man died 
and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Then it goes on to say, the rich man also died. So there's the contrast. And was buried. Huge difference, right? The guy who looks like he has God's blessing, according to to Pharisee theology, according to TV theology, according to Job's friend theology, the guy who looks like he's affirmed by God because he's got it all, feasting sumptuously. Whoever uses the word sumptuously, it's a great word. He feasts. He's got it all. He's got the money. He's got the clothes. He's got everything. That guy died. Period. And then you have the poor man. And how is he described? The guy with nothing except sores covering him, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's fascinating. That's fascinating because if you're in a Jewish culture, which these guys are, The place where you want to be is by Abraham's side. Father Abraham. He he, he is our our spiritual father. He he is the man. He is the one that if you're where Abraham is, you're where God is. That's the idea. Both sides, the Pharisee side. Well, anybody in the Jewish culture would say, that's where I want to be. So it's it's clear enough. It's straightforward. You You want to be where he is. That's the idea. It's fascinating. It's not the way you'd think the story would go, but it's fascinating. Interview the person on the street and you you ask them how you think it's going to go in the afterlife for these two people and they would have the opposite of this. That's what makes it interesting. Verse 23 says, And in Hades, that's the rich man, in Hades, in in the place of the grave, in the place of death, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. That's not where you want to be. You want to be with him. He's far off, so there's distance, and Lazarus at his side. Hades, place of the dead, place of torment, far away from Hades. This isn't the way the story is supposed to go. This isn't what I've been taught. This isn't what I've been teaching. Not according to a common prosperity doctrine. This is like the three little wolves in the big bag, big bad pig. I wanted to get it out of my mouth better than that. It just didn't come out. I mean, it's so ingrained in common thinking. This isn't how the story is supposed to go. This is the opposite of the way the story is supposed to go. And Jesus is giving shock value preaching. Shocking them into a reality. Well, then let's keep going in verse 24. And he, that would be the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And I'm probably not doing a very good job of reading it. I mean, if he's experiencing what he's experiencing, it's probably a lot more dramatic than that. But he's desperate, crying out for mercy. Doesn't seem to be a change of nature. Send Lazarus. Send servant guy or somebody who's under me. Certainly send him over here. 
Notice the contrast again. He, this is the guy in verse 19 who was feasting sumptuously. And now he's begging for a drop of water because of anguish. Huge, huge point of difference. Verse 25 says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Comfort versus anguish. Tables turned. Looks different. Verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. We should maybe say more about that later, but it's pretty clear there's something fixed and you don't reverse what's happened after somebody breathes their last breath. So no reversal, as we approach verse 27, no reversal, no mercy, but there's a final request. And he said, verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. I know my brothers have my theology. They've had the same teachers. They've had the same discipleship training program. They've been listening to the same people on TV, if there was such a thing. They have my same mindset, and apart from somebody warning them, they're going to end up in the same place I'm in. Please, if you, if, if you can't do anything for me, at least go to them. This is commonly the way people think. This is how people see the world and see God and see themselves. So then verse 29 says, But Abraham, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the Bible. They have the Old Testament. They have the law of God. Let them hear them. 30 says, And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Shocking. Really shocking. They're, the guy's convinced that what will convince them is a miracle. A visible, tangible miracle. First and foremost, resurrection. Then, then they'll believe. Then, then they'll listen. And Abraham says, no, no, they won't. They didn't listen to the Bible. If they don't listen to the Bible, they won't listen to the miracle. I think there's no doubt some foreshadowing here, given the fact that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. And while many people will believe, many people won't believe. It's really shocking. Really helpful. Really good. Really helpful for us. Because we tend to think in the exact opposite terms of most things in the parable. 
And here is Jesus saying something very, very different from sacred tradition. Very, very different from pop culture then and now. Very different. Because he wants to burst our bubble? No. Because he wants to speak the truth and help us so that we might understand. I recently heard a very respectable Bible teacher, historian, theologian, say that that he didn't like the Gospels very much. Like conservative, faithful, Bible-teaching kind of Christian person, we probably have some of his books in our bookstore. He said, "I, I I I don't really like the Gospels. We said it for shock value. Because Jesus, throughout the whole thing, is constantly exposing wrong thinking, wrong thinking that we tend to have. (laughs) And we don't like to hear that. And then he went on to say, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I'm kind of warming up to the Gospels. (laughs) But if you're kind of thinking, you know, I was here last week and the week before and the week before, and by now I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed, like it's just constant negative Jesus. But again, if we have a fallen, broken, sinful world who doesn't understand God and opposes Him for who He really is, and then you've got the leaders involved promoting and perpetuating these things, I mean, there's going to be some sting. There's going to be some conflict. And you can either say, you know, I don't like Him very much. Or you can look at the big picture and say, I'm so thankful that He's willing to be the kind, gracious Savior that He is so that I can understand, so I can be set free from traditions that are not healthy, that are not helpful, that are not truthful. And then you start warming up to, to, to the gospel accounts. You say, all right, this is, this is good. This is great. But, but the gospel accounts aren't a great um, affirmation of the, you know, the goodness of humanity. Um, they really aren't. They're an affirmation of how backward things are when we're on our own and how much we need God's revelation of Himself in His Son and then how much we actually need atonement for our, our rebellion against Him. So with this in mind, let, let's, let's draw some conclusions. One major conclusion and then some other conclusions. And and I want to say something else about parables now. If it's a parable, don't want to start a war. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but I'm not really going to... It kind of doesn't matter. It's obviously meant to teach a point. It's obviously meant to, to have us see things clearer than we see them. When it comes to parables, we know something about how to interpret them. Because Jesus gives many parables. Sometimes he doesn't give the interpretation. But sometimes he does. And what we do see, they're not like allegories with a bunch of hidden meanings. Uh, They're not meant to, to have us look at all of the details and draw all kinds of conclusions from all of the details. What they tend to do is make one major point. Parables do. And so people who've written on parables and thought about parables have made sure to remind Bible students, hey, remember, you know, there's usually one major point involved. And I would like to at least remind you of that. What's, if there's one major point, we can look, every, all of it's true. We want to look at some of the details, but there's one major point involved. What is it? 
I mean, what's the takeaway when we walk out today and say, parable of the rich man and Lazarus? What's he getting at? What's the main takeaway? Is the main takeaway, rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven? And most of us are going, no, surely that's not it. But you know what, if you isolated this from the rest of its context, you, 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 you might draw that conclusion. Is the point, it's, it's nice to be nice, so be nice. If you only look at this passage, you, you might want to draw that kind of conclusion. Again, if we just isolate the parable and we have nothing around the context, we have nothing else to go on, and we just remove it from its natural habitat, you're, you're going to do what even some commentators do that are otherwise good Christian commentators, and you're going to kind of come to the conclusion, it's nice to be nice, so be nice. Isn't that nice? That's the takeaway? I mean, let's just think of in absurdity here. So what would be best would be if you give away all of your money, so you're poor, and then do some kind of self-inflicted injury and make sure that you can somehow get to rich people's houses and uh, where there are wild dogs. And if you do all of those things, you're assured heaven. And you say, that's ridiculous, right? And by the way, it would, it, somebody else, I'm stealing this from somebody else, but you know, if it's to give all your money away and then you'll be sure to go to heaven, I mean, you just damn the people that you gave your money to. Because they have money, and when the music stops, you're busted. I mean, so, I mean, just... Obviously, that's not the idea, but I want to point out the kind of the ridiculousness of it because we, we sometimes, when we're, when we're not thinking clearly, we come to these interpretations that kind of deny the context, and they deny the whole context, and we're saying things that don't even sound like Christianity. It's nice to be nice. Moral of the story is, let's make sure that we're nice. Well, is it true? It's absolutely true that we would want to be nice. Were the Pharisees, if the Pharisees represent the rich man, were they wrong in not giving to help this person? Yeah, they're totally wrong. But when we step back again and say, what's Jesus really getting at? I think what he's getting at is he's got the Pharisees in, their, in his crosshairs. We just learned, we just learned if we look at the context... That they're lovers of money. They're like the rich guy here. And they claim to, to obey the law. We have the law. We obey the law. Watch what we do and God will accept you. Um, what's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Did the Pharisees do that? Did the rich man do that? No. See, they haven't needed Jesus. They haven't needed Jesus, and Jesus knows that they do. And so he's making it clear to them, you guys say you keep the law, but you don't keep the law. You guys are like the rich man in the parable. You, 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 don't, you don't love those who are around you who have needs. You're lawbreakers. And I really think there's a pattern now because we just saw before this that Jesus exposes the Pharisees of, as uh, uh as those who are lovers of money, not lovers of God. First greatest commandment. 
So earlier, not today, but we saw Jesus exposes them for their law breaking because they're lovers of money, not lovers of God. So they break God's law on that level. Now let's just carry this out. Now they don't love their neighbor as themselves. Let's expose them on that level. Hello, you need Jesus. You need atonement. You need forgiveness. You, you need justification. And they don't think they need justification. They justify themselves. Earlier we learned about in our passage, not today. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He's showing the Pharisees are sinners. Because they're like the rich man in the parable. He's got to expose them for their benefit. He's got to expose them for the benefit of all of the watchers and people who are thinking they actually are the people that God affirms. And they're not. Isn't it interesting, in our passage, this would support the the kind of argument that I'm making. In our passage kind of the punchline comes uh, down in verse 30. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And that, 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 that was the problem of the rich man. The rich man needed to repent. And he didn't repent. And he died. And his fate was sealed. Send someone back. And if you send someone back, they will repent. What's needed is repentance. I think that's really what he's getting at. They they need a a fundamental change of perspective. Literally, the word repent means to change your mind. Okay, In the spiritual realm, they've got to change their mind about who they are spiritually. They're not law keepers. They're law breakers. They've got to change their mind about who Jesus is. He's the perfect Savior come to save His people from their sins of breaking God's law, of not loving with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and not loving your neighbor as yourselves. You've got to see Jesus for who He is, the one who will... Yes, be resurrected from the dead, having atoned for sins. They've got to repent. And if you think you're a law obeyer, you will never repent and you'll never see Jesus for who He really is. And so, what I would suggest to you is, if we avoid the the problem of just looking at the parable... And drawing the conclusion is, we got to do more, try harder. Got to be nicer. Is it true? We should be nicer. But in the context, he's showing them their guiltiness. Their need to repent. Repent of being law breakers, even though they say they're law keepers. And their need for Jesus. Rewind just a little bit and and let's flesh this out a little bit. If you were to work through Luke, you'd see a reoccurring word at strategic places. And the reoccurring word is repent. You've got to see Jesus for who he really is. You've got to embrace him as Savior. You need him. Pharisees don't need him because they're law keepers. And now Jesus has just systematically dismantled them, exposed them as lawbreakers. It's amazing what he's doing. And in chapter 15, the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus. They're they're bad-mouthing Jesus because he's spending time with sinners. Bad people. You know, sinners. They're lawbreakers. 
what is Jesus? The Messiah? The King? He says He's the Messiah, the promised King. Well, if He really were that, He wouldn't be with bad people. He wouldn't be with lawbreakers. And it says in chapter 15 where that's happening, that those sinners were repenting. And in my Bible that I write in to see associations, chapter 15, I think it is on the left side of the page, chapter 16 on the right-hand side of the page, and I'm circling the word repent in our parable, repent earlier in 15, and then working my way through Luke and saying, this, this is humankind's greatest need, is to see Jesus for who he is. And to not be like the Pharisees who think they don't need Jesus because they think they're law keepers because they think they're good people. Does this make sense? If the point of the parable is, be nice. And that's the overall point. Why did Jesus have to die? That wouldn't even make sense. But where we allow it to be where it's originally occurring in the storyline, in the drama, you go, okay, I get it. Lovers of money, the rich ones, they end up in hell. And the one who is there in hell speaking, the rich man, acknowledges that his greatest need, his brother's greatest need, is repentance. Oh, in that sense, now he's agreeing with what Jesus has been saying and what John the Baptist was saying. But it's too late. It's too late. Maybe one more thing regarding the main point, the main issue. I sound like a preacher, don't I? Just one more thing. I heard a preacher preach this week and I thought, he's preaching too long. And then, you know, I'm not very good at this, but I've at least done it long enough to go. I'm sure I preach too long, and that's what you think every week. So it was good for me. Um, just one more thing, dearly beloved. Um, yeah, 20 minutes later, uh, get to the point. So I'm, you pray for me. I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> I want to draw another connection here. The Pharisees said they were, they were, they were um, children of Abraham, Father Abraham. I mean, they would have loved our song, Father Abraham. I mean, they would love that because it's all about Father Abraham. We are the chosen people. We're related to Abraham. God chose Abraham and said he would make him a great nation and bless the earth through him. And, and, and so they would associate themselves with him. All Jewish people would. And the Pharisees would be like, you know, the ultimate example. And so in our parable, Father Abraham, Father Abraham. It's just, it's a, it's, it's a way of saying we're, we're with God. What's interesting is where we learn about Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17, all throughout. And then we read Romans and we read Galatians. Abraham didn't profess to be a good law keeper. He was actually a lawbreaker. He was a pagan. And he trusted in God for righteousness, for law-keeping. Go ahead and look at it with me if you would. It's super important. Galatians chapter 3 is where I'm going to reference it. But you could go to Genesis chapter 15 if you'd like. Because Galatians 3 is quoting Genesis 15. I mean, it kind of oozes with irony. 
Father Abraham, Father Abraham, Father Abraham. And the Pharisees are saying, we're law keepers. God accepts us because we're good. Even though they're lawbreakers. Here's what I want you to make sure that you see. If you truly are a child of Abraham, it means you're a person who believes like Abraham believes. And Abraham didn't believe that he was such a good guy that God would accept him. Abraham believed in God's promise of redemption. And God credited Abraham with righteousness, with law-keeping. It's amazing. So if you really are a child of Abraham, you're a believer like Abraham, you don't believe in your inherent good or your inherent ability to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love neighbor as yourself, you, you, you believe in God's great gospel promise. And it's, it's the absolute irony. If they really would have been children of Abraham, they would have seen Jesus for who He is and they would have believed in Him, trusted in Him for their law-keeping status, for their righteousness, for their justification. So... Genesis 15.6, and then I'll read Galatians 3. But Genesis 15.6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him, he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. As I've mentioned time and time again, as law-keeping, as obedience to God's great command. Abraham's a pagan. God credits to him his righteousness and then God begins working, making him a father of many nations. So he's not a pagan anymore. Galatians chapter 3 fleshes it out a little bit more for us. Galatians 3, 6, just as Abraham. I mean, we, we want to follow Abraham's example in this sense. Believed God, trusted God, and it was counted, it was reckoned, it was credited, not based upon his, what his doing, but, but on God's. It was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. See, that was what we were talking about. Who's the son of Abraham? Those who are of faith, faith in God and God in his promise. Verse 8 says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, declare righteous, declare law keepers, even though they're not, the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel, the good news, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Hope you can see some of the connections. At least you can start to see some of the connections. They said Father Abraham, but they were about self-justifying. They weren't sons and daughters of Abraham. They said they were, but they weren't. Because if you read Genesis, or you read Galatians, or you read Romans, Abraham believes God. He trusts God and His gospel promise. And it's credited. It's a forensic, legal kind of thing. It's he, He's declared righteous, justification. Or bank account kind of terminology. It's put into his bank account. He's a sinner. He's in the red. And it's credited to him as law-keeping. And now he looks wealthy. If you want to be a... It's a good idea, by the way. You want to be a son of Abraham. You want to be a daughter of Abraham. And that means you'll be on God's side. You want to be on the Abraham side of the great chasm. How does it happen? By law-keeping. No. 
by believing God's gospel promise. That's how it happens. Other miscellaneous things, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. Just Let's make some miscellaneous observations. To, to, to profess belonging to Abraham doesn't mean you belong to Abraham. I think that's a good takeaway. The rich man claimed to be, like the Pharisees, part of the right religion, and yet they ended up in hell. They ended up condemned. So it is possible, if we can draw that conclusion, to say the right thing and you belong to the right religion and not end up on the right side of eternity. I think we can learn that from our parable. Another thing we can learn from this is that death brings comfort for some and anguish for others. He's in a better place. Lazarus is. He's in a better place. The guy who thought he had the blessing of God because he was relying upon his own supposed righteousness, even though he didn't have it, is not in a better place. He's actually in a worse place. It's not that his suffering is over. His suffering in one sense has just begun. Pretty sobering to come from Jesus and, and have that kind of conclusion. I don't know how you could not draw that conclusion. I also drew the conclusion death brings irreversible division. Death brings irreversible division because of that word fixed in verse 26. It's a great chasm, has been fixed. None may cross. That's a pretty sobering reality. But it's what Jesus said, so I think it's true. Which then motivates us to see the need for repentance, a fundamental change in perspective in light of who Jesus is. One more conclusion would be, lack of miracles is not the problem. Lack of miracles is not the problem. Another way to put it would be, I have to draw the conclusion from this, that miracles aren't enough to change people's hearts. Miracles aren't enough to change people's hearts. I just need to know that. Changes the way I share the gospel with people. Changes the way I would do ministry. Changes the way I would evaluate ministry. Changes Omaha Bible Church if need be. Miracles don't change people's hearts. When Jesus is raised from the dead, it doesn't change people's hearts. It's not that it's not super important. It's absolutely important. But we get into this mindset that's not Jesus' mindset. We think, well, we have the Bible and we have God's commands and we have that, but you know what we really need? They have the law and the prophets. If they don't believe that, they won't believe it if somebody's been raised from the dead. Do you believe that? It'd be good if you did. It'll change your methodology, change your perspective. God has to change somebody's heart. He uses His Word. He uses His Spirit. And if that doesn't do it, a miracle certainly won't help. Got to keep that in mind. You know, it's kind of freeing too when you think about it. Because, I hate to tell you this, but I can't do miracles. 
And I love to tell you this. The people who say they can do them probably can't either. Well, then it's settled. It's helpful. It's helpful to know that. So what am I going to do? I'm going to remember Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. How will they know without a proclaimer? I need to proclaim the truth of the gospel. I need to proclaim from God's word. And knowing full well that God is going to use that if he's going to change somebody's heart. And he's going to use his spirit. And so I've got to depend upon God to do that. It's helpful actually. It's helpful. Well, as we leave, let's remember that there's a great need for repentance. Seeing Jesus for who He is. A fundamental radical change in perspective of who Jesus is. To agree with God about who Jesus is. That He's the only one who obeyed the law perfectly. That He's the only one who can atone for our law breaking. That He's the only one who, yes indeed, was raised from the dead. Everybody needs Him. Even religious, rich people who seem to have it all going for them. Even them. Even them. So with that said, let's pray. Father, thank you for a good time together and considering things that matter. Thank you for your spirit and for the power of your word as well. Help us not to be um, distracted. Help us to, to have a, a biblical, thoughtful, um, robust faith, but in all the right senses, have it be, have it be a simple one where we take Jesus at his word and, and that we have ministry that reflects the life and ministry of Jesus. Please show us our sin so that we can see our need for Jesus, the great Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.